I really am so honored at the privilege of being here, and I encourage you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 46. I don't know whether you've ever been in a, in a, in a literally chaotic storm. If you live in the Virginia Beach area, you've probably had the experience I did soon after I came. Of course, realizing that there's significantly more water than than actual turf around here, I, I had to buy a boat like most newcomers. And so Larry White, Paul Williams, and I kind of bought thirds in a boat. And one uh, Fourth of July, I made the mistake of taking our family down to the tall ship brigade and the fireworks downtown and not even thinking that it's going to be dark and cold and a long way back. And apparently some of the people uh, on other boats were imbibing something we were not because it was chaotic getting out of there. And then we turned the corner and a storm was coming in and we dropped the, the, the girls off there at the first marina there by the Hampton Tunnel. And Paula's dad and I made our way for about an hour and a half into that storm. And literally, I couldn't even see the the, the lights on the bank, and I couldn't see the boat in front of us. That was kind of my only guiding point till I got to Lynn Haven. I promise you, when I got out at Lynn Haven Marina, I bowed down and kissed the ground. If you've ever been in a chaotic storm, you want terra firma. Now, I have some bad news for you. Terra firma isn't firma. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, geologists have discovered that even our continents are afloat, continually changing shape and location by moving plates. Uh, more good news, at the edge of those plates are volcanoes, Earth's heaters, and they make the continents earthquake-prone. So we live in a changing planet, in an expanding universe, and we ask ourselves the question, if the earth itself isn't in a fixed position, where can we find an anchor in life's storms? We live in chaotic days. Politically, we've seen changes that are unprecedented and quick. We have issues that we face in North Korea with various Islamic groups that, that have different agendas, and it seems like if, if one is dealt with, two or three others perk up, and it is chaotic to live in our day. Perhaps you live in a chaotic situation at work or at home. Perhaps you've gone through a, a challenge, a divorce, difficulty. And so the question is, how do we find security in life's storms? We're going to be in Psalm 46 this morning, and I think here we're going to find that the cure for our anxiety, fear, and loneliness. He's going to deal with both physical disaster as well as political and economic instability, and he declares that beyond all these events stands the powerful Creator whose Word is absolute and whose presence is assured. If you have your Bibles open, follow as I read the entire psalm. God is our refuge and our strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains would slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at the swelling pride, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God 
the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations make an uproar. The kingdoms totter. He raised His voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolation in the earth. He makes wars to cease at the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and He cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Father, we profess that your word is truth without error. And so this morning as we encounter your word, it is our prayer that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Teach us from this great psalm how we find an anchor, how we find security, how we find stability in the midst of economic and political and personal chaos. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a note-taking person, I want to give you some outline as we go. And so, first of all, I want us to notice in the psalm here, the first three verses are the premise declared. So, verse 1 begins this way. As you're looking at it, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So he declares the premise of this psalm. So I want us to, you're going to have to add a very present help there to say this together. I want you to hear this in your own lips. God is our refuge and strength. Now you can talk out loud this Sunday, be quiet next Sunday. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. That's the declaration. This is where the psalmist begins. Now, verse 2 is our response. Therefore, we will not fear. If verse 1 is true, and we can affirm verse 1 in our lives, then the declaration must follow. If God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble, then we should not fear. Now, notice that the setting of this psalm is the earth. In fact, I want you to kind of underline in your Bible, verse 2, the earth should change. Go down to the verse 3, its waters, that is, the earth will roar. Go down to verse 6, the earth is melting. Go down to verse 8, uh, the declarations of desolations in the earth. Verse 9, the end of the earth. Verse 10, he will be exalted in the earth. In other words, six times he's going to reference the reality of the earth. And you say, well, what's the point of it? Well, first of all, the earth is God's creation. It is our present habitat. Amen. This is where we live. So he's talking about the reality of where you and I do business every day. Now, the Bible teaches us that at the present time, the earth is in a fallen state and thus susceptible to catastrophe and change. Over in Romans 8, Verses 18 through 22, write those down. The Apostle Paul said that even until this very time, that the, in fact, the entirety of creation groans under the weight of sin. 
So man's rebellion, not just Satan's rebellion, but man's rebellion and sin has had a cataclysmic impact on planet earth. And therefore, we wonder sometimes, why is our earthly existence so difficult? Why are there so many difficulties? Why are there so many challenges? Why do we see so many natural disasters? If God is really good and God is sovereign, why is it that we experience such difficulty in this life? Well, the answer is, it is God's good creation, but it has suffered the curse of Adam's fall and man's rebellion. So the earth in which we live is going to be... uh, susceptible to chaos. Now, if your dad was like my dad, and I would come home from school, and I didn't feel like a teacher had given me the grade I deserved, or maybe I I didn't make the starting team on the football team, or whatever it was, and, and I would say, well, it's just not fair. And my dad would always say what your dad said, what? Life isn't supposed to be fair. It's just, it's just the reality that if you live long enough, you're going to experience chaos, Chaos perhaps in your marriage, chaos at work, chaos politically, economically. We've lived through times where you can watch a stock market go up 300 points in one day and down 500 the next day, and you've got to go, what? How, how? You know, I tell people, I can retire, just can't live very long after I do. You have no idea what's happening. That's the chaos in which we live. Now, what I want you to notice is what this psalm does throughout. Listen, it's going to move from the earthly to the heavenly. It's going to move to the temporal, that is the now, to the eternal. Now, here's the problem. We tend to separate the two. We sing about the sweet by and by, and then we go to work on Monday and experience the nasty now and now. So we think somehow that, what, that, that history is somewhat linear, that is, that we're living in the now, and then someday we're going to die and we'll live in the eternal. Now, what I want to declare to you that the eternal is already present in the now. Both are going on consequentially from the beginning of time. God is eternal, and so His kingdom and His rule is eternal by nature. It has no past, has no present, no future. It is eternal. And so even while we live in chaos, there is a reality in the heavenlies that we sometimes forget. So listen. Because God is eternal, for Him, time is irrelevant. That is, the past and the future are all present tense for God. The story of the Bible is that the eternal God has invaded our temporal existence. So here's what the psalmist says, that when we find earthly circumstances, what we need to do is to focus on God. See, what happens, we tend to focus on our circumstances. We, we look at our pain, we look at our suffering, we look at our challenges, our difficulties. Now, when we do that, it causes us anxiety and fear. And so the psalmist says, I want you to look at the unchanging God in the midst of it. So go back and look at these verses again. Hear them. He said, God is our refuge and our strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear even If the earth should change, and even if the mountains would slip into the heart of the sea, he's talking about earthly catastrophe like a a hurricane or a storm or a tornado or a volcano that buried Pompeii in a day. He said, even if these two occur, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake, 
there is a river. Now, we're going to come back in a moment to that river, but I want us to focus on this first of all. The word refuge. It's the noun for refuge means a shelter. Isaiah 4, 5, and 6 speaks of God as a covering for shade in the daytime and a shelter from the storm and the rain. Now, if you were a desert people and you were in the sun during the daytime, what you want is a shelter. And so Isaiah pictures God in this way. Now, what that means, and I'm going to give you some words here, it means that God is omnibenevolent. Now, we sometimes speak of God's attributes with the word omni, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. But one you may not know is this one, omnibenevolent. That means that God is altogether good and holy all the time. Now, what that means is that God cannot cause evil. It is not in His character. It's not in His nature. So you say, well, how do I experience evil? Well, sometimes it's choices we make. Sometimes it's choices other people make. Sometimes it's just the fallen nature of the universe itself. And so even though there's chaos, the psalmist would say, that's a part of the earth, the earth, the earth, the earth, that even though that's true, that we already know that God is our refuge. He is our strength means His might is exerted over all our foes. He not only protects us, He fights for us. So the Bible says He is a sword and a shield to me. Speaks to His omnipotence. That God is always able to accomplish all that He desires to accomplish. He is omnipotent. It, it, that, isn't that good news? So He is an omnibenevolent God. He's an omnipotent God. He is a very present help. He is with us. He speaks to His omnipresence. He is everywhere present at every time. By the way, the word trouble here means distressed or cramped quarters, a constricted feeling. You ever find yourself that? It can be at work or it can be anywhere that you just feel like, man, life is crushing in. Thing, things just can't get any worse. It just seems that I'm cramped. God is there when the world closes in and pressure mounts. Now, I want you to think through this a moment. What if God was omnipotent, but not omnipresent? Now, that would mean that He could accomplish something if He knew about it. In fact, that was one of the challenges on the story of Elijah and the Baal prophets. You remember, he, 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 you know, they've got a sacrifice out here, and the true God's going to rain down fire from heaven. And Elijah's having a ball because he said, you know, you need to holler louder because he may be on vacation. In fact, he may be going to the loo. You go back into the Hebrew, that's what he says. He, he may be excusing himself. Now, if God is omnipotent, but he's not omnipresent, he may or may not be able to help you in your time of distress because you cry out and he's somewhere else on the planet managing affairs. Aren't you God glad that God is both omnipotent and omnipresent? Now, what if God were omnipotent, omnipresent, but not omnibenevolent? See, that was the problem they had with all these deities. In the, in the Roman and Greek pantheon, you never knew whether Zeus was in a good mood or not. I mean, you just kind of had to hope you caught him on a good day. So Zeus and the other gods, Thor and all these mythological gods, man was always frightened because he may or might, he had to appease the gods. We don't have to appease a holy God. He is an omnibenevolent God. Listen who appeased his own wrath for our sin. Now, that one is amazing, isn't it? 
You see, our sin brought reproach upon the holy character of God, and God brought the sacrifice that appeased the wrath that was rightfully ours. That's an omnibenevolent God. So we have a God who not only knows, we have a God who cares, and we have a God who can accomplish. Therefore, we will not fear. You see, we've got to start again with verse 1, the declaration, because we know who God is, we shall not fear. Now, the psalmist just takes two verses to talk about the earthly challenges. See, we take, if we were writing the psalm, we'd take about most of the verses because that's where we are. You know, we talk to people and say, you just can't believe how tough my life is. You just can't believe how it's been since I've lost my job. You just can't believe how they treat me at school. You can't believe how they treat me at university. We spend all of our time talking about us. The psalmist spends all of his time talking about God. So here are the two things. Verse 3. Though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Now go down to verse three, 6. Even if the nations are in an uproar. Amen. Is that not what we see? You pick up the paper, you turn on the television, you think, I don't even watch this anymore. I mean, it's one after the other. Even though that is the case, the kingdoms are tottering around us. For them, the waters were the vast unknown. You remember, for a long period of time, uh, they believed that if they sail far enough out into these chaotic waters, they'd just sell off the edge. They had no idea what was in the waters, the Leviathan. They, for them, the waters were chaos. The idea is that even if there was a return to the primeval chaos of Genesis 1, and the word remove says if the mountains and the landscape was changed, it could describe an earthquake like that one that buried Pompeii in an instant. It was there one day and gone the next Verse 6 then looks at political instability. When nations march into battle, the word raged here is actually the same word for the waters in verse 3, and the word moved is the same word for the mountains. What he's saying is that nature and history and daily circumstances can both be chaotic. Have you found that to be true? He said that that's the case. But here is what's going on in the heavenlies. Now, remember that what the psalmist is depicting is that we're living in an earth existence. We have limited ability to see and to comprehend the affairs around us. And yet the tragedy is we play God as if we can see everything that exists and we think that eternity begins after the earthly existence. What we don't understand is that eternity has always been. That's the whole definition of eternity. And that eternity and the heavenly realities are corresponding, they're going on at the same time as our earthly reality. So over against these chaotic waters is God's river. This river that makes glad the city of God. This is in Revelation 22.1. It's the river of God's Spirit and mercy that makes His people glad. Further in the midst of the city there is a tabernacle of the Most High, a permanent covering, and God is in the midst of her, and He shall not be moved. Since God is in Jerusalem, there is stability. Verse 6 says, He raised His voice, and the earth melted. You ever thought of this? In creation, God raised His voice, and the earth was formed. But now what He means is that in the midst of our chaos, God speaks, and the earth melts. Now, it's possible that He's speaking metaphorically. What that would mean is that, and you've probably experienced this, 
Maybe you're sitting in a hospital waiting room, and everything you hear is chaotic. One doctor comes out and says, we've got this problem, and another one comes out, and you've got friends that sometimes are trying to encourage, and they're kind of like Job's friends, and they say, you know, my sister had that, and she just died in weeks. I mean, you're, you're hearing chaotic signals all around. Have you been there? If you haven't, you will. And in the midst of that chaos, God speaks. Maybe you're just sitting there, and you open your Bible. Or maybe you remember something that Brother Eric said from the pulpit on Sunday morning or something you had in your small group Bible study time that there was that Word of God that just kind of came into the midst of your chaos. And it may not have been audible. It was much too loud for that. God just spoke to your heart. And what happens when that occurs? The chaos melts. That God can speak into the midst of the most difficult circumstances of our life and absolute chaos melts by his word it also by the way can be taken literally second peter chapter 3 verse 10 says that one day when the lord returns at his voice this earth will melt away so how do we survive and how do we thrive during chaos The answer is with the assurance that God is with us. Look at verse 7 and verse 11. I want you to do something. Some of you who are here when I was pastor remember me doing this. Anytime the Holy Spirit prompts the writer to put a phrase down twice in in a kind of a separate way, he's drawing a picture frame. In other words, he's trying to say, I want you to look at what's inside this picture frame. Notice verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Do you see the picture frame? So here's the picture frame. Here's what we look at. Oh, come. Behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. His makes wars to cease. He's going to break the bow. He burns chariots, cease driving, and know that I am God. I'm going to be exalted among the nations. We're going to come back to those three phrases. But what I want you to notice here is that the, the reality of the psalmist is this truth. The Lord is with us. One of the things that distinguishes Israel's religion in the Old Testament from every other religion of that day was this assurance that God was with them. You remember when they would travel, the Ark of the Covenant would go first, and during the daytime, there was a cloud over it. At nighttime, there was a pillar of fire over it. When they would stop, they would put up this tent to worship, and it's called a tabernacle, which meant God's presence. So they they were given explicit directions of how they moved around and outside of it because God walked among them. And he told them, if, if the tabernacle doesn't move, you don't move. Cloud doesn't go, you don't go. So God's presence was with them. Now, they traveled through many lands. And when they did, there was a God of Baal and Canaan. There was a different God in Egypt. They were all regional deities. So they were not omnipresent. They were limited to a region. In fact, I want to show you perhaps the greatest illustration of this in the Old Testament as it relates to this. You remember the story of Moses? We know it best for the miracle of the burning bush. Now, I've always been amazed. I was telling Eric in the first service, it always amazed me somebody would be, be a liberal theologian. I'm not even sure why you want to be a theologian if you don't believe the Bible. And so there are some liberal theologians who try to argue away the, the miracle of the burning bush. And they'll say, one of them suggested there was kind of a, 
maybe a, a, a leak of natural gas or oil under this bush, and it just kind of caught fire and burned, and it, go figure. You know, the miracle is not the bush burning and not being consumed. What the miracle is, now listen, is the miracle was that God allowed Moses to glimpse the eternal in the present. What was the flame about the bush was God. He was in it. He said, hey, take your sandals off. This is holy ground. Now, got it, got it. let's go rewind a minute, and then let's look at the history. Israel is in bondage. They're in Egypt. They're now making bricks without straw. They're under a ban that all of the male children are going to be killed. They're devastated. There is no hope. This is chaotic. There's nothing that can be done. But they begin to cry out to God. And all of a sudden, Moses is on the far side taking care of the sheep. And God says to Moses, I have heard the groaning of my people. I have seen their condition. And behold, I am coming down to deliver. You see, what Moses was allowed to see, don't get hung up on the bush. What you got to get hung up on is God making appearance from eternity into temporal reality. He came down. He does that when we encounter him in his word. He does it when we encounter him in prayer. That all of a sudden God shows up. And Moses does what we do. He identifies God as a God of history. Yes, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know what he's saying? He hasn't shown in our generation he was powerful among the patriarchs, but you see, we have that tendency. We come to church, and we sing about God, and we believe about it, and we say, yeah, I believe the miracles. I believe that the Red Sea opened up. I believe all those things, but don't tell me God can heal my marriage. You don't know my husband. No, the problem is you don't know my God. You see, we focus on the circumstances and we identify a God of history rather than a God of the present. And when God reveals his memorial name there, he said, listen, when, when you go to the Pharaoh, you tell them, I am sent you. Now, that's a strange name because it's actually a verb and not a noun. It's a hifil verb, which means it's a, it, it's a past tense that has present. It's imperfect. So here's the best way to translate it. I am who I have always been, and I will continue to be. Now, you can translate this way. I was, I is, and I am going to keep being. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's me. God of creation, that's me. The God of the burning bush, that's me. When you get to the Pharaoh, I'm still going to be God when you get there because I alone am God. You see, it is the nature of God that changes our circumstances. Only a God who is eternal can be always present in every place at every time. Our theology does matter. Let me give you a verse to write down. Daniel eleven thirty two. It's one of my favorite verses. You know the story of Daniel. I won't rehearse that. It says in verse A part of it, it says that he can confuse us with godless talk and we will not keep his covenant. But here's the one I want you to know. Those who know their God will display strength and take action. See, when, when we understand fully who God is, our circumstances 
become insignificant in relationship to an all-powerful, almighty God who is omnibenevolent. So when we understand who God is, everything changes. So what is it that we do in the present based on the eternal? That's in verses 8 through 11. So here is our present reality based on the fact that we now understand that eternity is going on sequentially with our present. First one, write these down. Behold the works of the Lord who is sovereign over history. Now look at it. Come, verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord. Because we live in the now, our vision is limited. Occasionally, we look back and see the hand of God. This is where we normally do it. We do it in the rearview mirror. We go through a difficult time. We go through challenging circumstances, and and we sometimes struggle with God. We may even blame God. Aren't you glad He's big enough to handle that? And then we look in the rearview mirror, and we go, oh, my goodness, I can't believe he was doing that all along. You know, we had a, and I know the church still has a great, big and huge and incredible singles ministry. And that was growing when I was here and some of you gals were in it. And I remember there would be time that a young single gal would come in and say, Oh, pastor, would you just pray with me? I, I found Mr. Right. And I want you to pray that, that, that he'll understand that I'm Mrs. Right. <laughs> now, I happened to have some experience with Mr. Right and knew he wasn't Mr. Right. And I said, honey, I'm going to pray for you, but I'm not praying the way you're praying. Now, you see, God, I'm not sovereign. I'm not God, but God is. And there are some times that God says no for our good. There are some times that he says, wait, because we're not ready. So we need to understand the reality. Here's faith. If you want a really simple definition of faith, is the ability to see God's work before it occurs. See, the rear view mirror is simple. We just pass that. We've got to learn. And you say, how can I do that, Pastor? I just don't get it. We, we focus on his works. Who is he? What has he done? Has he ever done evil to you? I was president at Southwestern Seminary during the Wedgwood shooting. Some of you remember those times when there were kids being killed in public schools. This one was at a local church. It was a rally at the flag event on a Wednesday night that came in and shot several of our students and several of their kids from high schools. And, and, and there were every, every news broadcaster you could get were on our campus. And, and I remember being interviewed by them. And they said, what do you have to say about this? Where was God? And I said, he was right there in the midst of them. That's what he tells us. And, and my conviction is that God will bring good out of this evil. He said, how can you believe that? And I said, because I know the character of God. Well, the next day in chapel, one of our older professors who's still there, Jack McGorman, got up and he was preaching on Romans 8. And he quoted that verse and he said, I want to tell you what it doesn't say before I tell you what it does say. It does not say that God causes evil. It says that God works in everything for good, doesn't cause everything. He didn't cause that crazed guy to walk in there that was evil and kill those kids but listen god's omnipotence is not thwarted by satan's power or our rebellion aren't you glad of that and he said here's what it does say that god is at work in every circumstance for his glory and your good and then he said you have to remember 
that what you think is your good and what God knows is your good are sometimes very different. See, God's good is to conform you to the image of His Son. That's what it says in that text. God wants to use every circumstance, good circumstance, bad circumstance, even that divorce that that is still kind of angst to you, or maybe that lost job or that unfair grade you got in college. He wants to take every circumstance and use those circumstances to conform you to His image. You know why? Because one day in glory, when we see that river, we're going to be in His full likeness. So He's working now. So when there is chaos in your life, look to the works of the Lord. Secondly, trust in His eternal goodness. He said one day all the wars will cease to the end of the earth. The chaos of history is going to be swallowed up in the cosmos of God. He will be exalted among the nations and the earth. And God's kingdom will establish a new heaven and a new earth without sin or sickness or separation. That's already in process. Thirdly, he says, now this is the important one. This is the hard one. Cease striving and know that I am God. It is the personal knowledge of God that permits him to be our security. I want to say one thing that you're not going to like. As long as you cling to any vestige of hope that you can fix yourself or your circumstances you will continue to strive in your own strength. That's why he says stop striving. As long, and I can't tell you how many times that I've witnessed to people who said, well, you know, when I get good enough, I'm going to, if you think you can get good enough without Jesus, you're striving in the flesh. Well, when I get this thing fixed in my marriage, or when I get, we're always living in that, when I change my circumstances, you can't change your circumstances. And you can't change you, but the Holy Spirit can change you through your circumstances. So he says, stop striving and know that I am God. Let God be God in your life. Go to him with open hands and an open checkbook and just say, no agenda, I'm yours. I've seen your works in the past. I know your omnibenevolence, and I am putting myself fully in your hands, and I can't work it out. It's yours. Now, let me give you four things to take away. I just want you to write them down. Earthly existence is always going to be filled with trouble. That's, that's the reality until Jesus comes. Number two, His presence secures us in the midst of our troubles. That His presence is enough. Just His presence. His Holy Spirit living in us. Number three, His power assures that He will overcome our troubles. You're not going to overcome your troubles. He will. He wants to. He desires to. Fourthly, His perfection assures us of our eternal destiny. I love this. People say, well, how do you know you're going to have heaven as your reward? Because that's where God lives. And I know God. And have a personal relationship with Him through His Son. God didn't create us just to be some sort of chaotic mess on earth. This earth is just, it's the beginning point. There's nothing permanent about it. The mountains are going to be cast into the sea. But there is a river. (laughs) There is a river. 
And God is in the midst of her. And I promise you that one day when you stand face to face, you'll look back and say, none of that mattered. You'll look back and see that he was at work in every circumstance of your life to conform you to the image of his son. Now, I wonder what God's saying to you this morning. If you don't know Christ as Savior, that's the beginning point. You, you can't make sense of life until you know Him. You can't make sense of circumstances. You can't move through it until you know Him. If you're a Christian, you need a family. You need a church home. You need people to encourage you as you rehearse together the good things of God. That's one of the things I loved about our small groups, our Sunday school, to get together and hear the stories. I remember when we used to, on Thanksgiving, come in here and hear those words of testimony throughout the year. That's what God does. Maybe you need a church home. In just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to say yes to God. Father, right now, we ask that your Holy Spirit would accomplish that which you alone can do. Bring a harvest to the preaching of your word. It's good seed. It will never return void. We claim that promise. Lord, right now there are those who need Christ as Savior. There are others who need a church family. They need to say, I need to be together where we can rehearse the works of God. And Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would lead us to obedience. There may be some who just want to come and claim this altar this morning. Kneel here to say, Lord, I've focused on my circumstances, and I've been striving And I quit. I surrender all to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.